This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this is? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. He said, I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him that he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. Do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and all the men and women who are incarcerated here. My name's Anthony, and I'm talking to Sky, who's in Texas. <laughs> I'm still, I'm still here. I'm almost still. not here. I'm so oh close to not being here. <laughs> so close. I can't wait. I know. I just am so excited. It's a 24-hour drive from Dallas to Boise, but I don't even care. I'm just so excited for like a literal change of scenery. Yeah. It's, I mean, I just can't see the inside of my apartment anymore. Yeah. How many hours will, will it be to get out of Texas? Will you be saying like, goodbye, Texas? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I will for sure be saying that, but it will be about, eight hours into my drive oh my gosh because <laughs> i'm in the east part of texas and it takes me i basically have to go all the way west until i hit amarillo so i think it's like the little panhandle at the top of texas and then i go up through colorado so wow. we'll see <laughs> well if you need somebody to chat with just give me a call i'll chat with you for <laughs> seriously how's it going with you Oh, not too bad. Everybody is out and about, and all the businesses are just about open, it seems like. I think everybody is ready to get out of the stay-at-home order. I'm just sitting very happily at home, drinking out of my Arthur Allen old pen mug here that you can buy in our gift shop. Shameless (laughs) self-promotion, Anthony. Shameless, yeah. (laughs) Go online. You can order from our gift shop, and we will be open to the public some point in May, June, We'll have more mm-hmm. details probably by the time this episode comes out. So, Well, speaking of Arthur Allen, should we uh, get started? Yes, yes. So this episode is a continuation of last week's with Reuben Gardner with my story. And we'll go more in depth in the crime that he was a part of and uh, the couple, Mary and Arthur Allen, that he was a part of. So this is our special couple episode of the season. And this is like one of my very favorite stories to tell at the old pen. And it all kind of started out when a nursing home asked, you know, staff at the old pen, hey, can somebody come out and give a presentation? And so, of course, I was asked to create a presentation. And so I started looking into uh, the women's ward. I was really interested in it. And I started at first trying to find some sort of connection and I was going through and I found that, oh, there are a lot of women who were nurses. Ooh, maybe I should do like a, a naughty nurse presentation uh, at this nursing home. I don't like home. that. Should have come I, up with a different title. It's not a good that, title. I know. <laughs> well, then I started to see 
another connection that there were a bunch of couples at the old pen that served time in the prison. And so this was mm-hmm. the very first presentation. It was called For the Love of Ham. Which is also the title of my autobiography, by the way. <laughs> For the Love of Ham. <laughs> For the Love of Ham. <laughs> yeah. So do you want to start it off with Mary? Sure. Yeah. Ladies first, as it were. Um, as it were. So... <laughs> So we'll just start with sources. Um, and actually, all of my sources are pretty normal. I, I didn't really stray any too far, I should say, outside of, of the norm. So, uh, of course, your inmate file, the Library of Congress Chronicling America, Idaho Daily Statesman articles, and Ancestry.com. And when I wrote the biography of Mary, I just like couldn't find very much on her. And so I started uh, the research for this episode, and I was just like, man, like this is totally Anthony's baby. Like he's going to have so much more than I did. And then I just kept thinking like, there has to be something about her somewhere. And what I got wrong was I thought that her maiden name was her first married name. And so then when I was able to sort of put the connection together, I actually found a whole bunch of stuff. So she may not have the, the, the longest backstory, but she still has kind of an interesting one. So Mary said that she was born in Missouri around around 1873. I dug and I dug and I dug, and I found a lot of contradicting sources about sort of where she was born and when she was born, but I think this is the best timeline that I have come up with. So she was indeed born in Missouri, but she was born around 1867 or 1868 to John, or he may have gone by Josiah, and Lucinda Aldrich. So she was born Mary Aldrich around 1867, 1868. She was the second youngest of nine kids. So her siblings were Kester, Alexander, Adela, Eliza, Julia, James, John, Mary herself, and then Henry. Kester, that's such an interesting Kester, name. Kester, yeah. Kester is a great, and it's with a, yeah, K-E-S-T-E-R. It's kind of uh, sweet. Her father was a farmer from Vermont, and her mother was a housekeeper. When Mary was two years old, the family moved to Blue Earth, Minnesota, which is just south of Minneapolis. Because they moved when she was so young, she didn't have any memory of really anywhere but Minnesota. And so on a lot of records, it actually says that she is born in Minnesota. But the census record that I found when she would have been about two years old says she was she was born in Missouri. So... So she claimed Minnesota, but she was actually born in Missouri. Likely because of her family's farming life, Mary says that she was illiterate and she did not attend school. They just, you know, with nine kids and you, your, your father's a farmer, you just work on the farm. You don't really have a chance to, mm-hmm. to go to school in the way that we do now. Her family raised her in the Methodist faith, which is a religion she maintained for presumably her whole life, or at least as far as when she comes into the prison, she still identifies as Methodist. Her mother died in 1886, and Mary says she was about 19 years old. So she said she was 19 when she died, but she's trying to use her age 32 as sort of that that measure, basically. Uh-huh. So if her mother actually died in 1886, which according to death records she did, Mary would have actually been born in about 1865, which is still two years earlier than the census records state. So you can see where things are kind of getting a little confusing. And then it got even more confusing because she says that she was 22 years old when her father died. 
But, according to death records, her father died in 1897, and if she had been born in 1865, which is sort of the age that we're assuming, at least according to her mother's death record, she actually would have been 32 at the time of his death. But she says that she's 32 when she enters the penitentiary in 1905. (sighs) So somewhere there's a bit of fudging of numbers, and my suspicion is that it's on Mary's end when she comes into the penitentiary. (laughs) She does look a little older, like in her mugshot. Yeah. Yeah, I remember when it said she was 32, I was like, oh, yikes. (laughs) Like, sorry, but like... (laughs) didn't age well if that's the case she also said that she left her parents home when her father died when she was 22 years old but i don't think that's the case especially since her father died in 1897 and she was 32 and given the fact that between 1890 and 1897 mary did actually marry someone i couldn't find a marriage record or her husband's name but she did have four daughters mamie julia josephine and lucy I don't know the order or their birth years. Actually, I I couldn't even find records of their maiden names, the daughter's maiden names, because the only record I found was from Mm herfindagraves.com. And on that, it just, it actually had that she, when she died, she left her daughters and that had their first names, but they were Mrs. Josephine Lynch, Mrs. uh, I think it was Julia Wilson. And so... I couldn't figure out what their maiden names were to try to find a marriage record. But we do know she had four kids. This first marriage ended in either divorce or death of her husband. Not really sure which. And then for an unknown reason, she ends up in Boise. And I'm not sure if she had her children with her or not. Considering that, according to that findagraves.com, most of her children were actually still in Minnesota. I don't think she had her children with her when she moved to Boise. Then what we have is March 18th, 1905, she married a man named Arthur Allen in Caldwell, Idaho. And so I will turn it over to Anthony to uh, give us a few more details about our man, Arthur. Yeah. So my sources are, of course, his inmate file, the Idaho Daily Statesman, Ancestry.com, Library of Congress Chronicling America, the Meadow Creek History by Robert Hughes for this little community in uh, Montana, a Wikipedia article on the Dunkards, also known as the Dunkard Brethren Church, a Wikipedia article on Crawford County, Kansas, and the 1905 to 1906 Warden's Biennial Report. So, Arthur Allen was born in Montana Territory in 1876 to a farming family, and Montana became the 41st state in November 1889, a few days before Washington, and about seven months before Idaho became the 43rd state. Arthur stated in his intake that he was born in Meadow Creek, which is today near an unincorporated community in Madison County, southwest of Bozeman, Montana. And this tiny community, which swapped names between Meadow Creek and McAllister in its history, which is what it's called now, McAllister, it was settled first in the 1860s. Arthur's father, Eli, was a farmer who ventured from New York, and he was one of these early settlers in this little town with his wife, Julia, his sons, Howard and Orville, and their daughter, Alice. And the family grew with another girl named Flora and their baby boy, cherished little Arthur Allen. They had plenty of hands to work on this farm in Montana. 
Now, the family were Dunkards, which was a Swiss-German Protestant group that began in the 1700s in Europe and further developed when founders landed in Pennsylvania with German immigrants. And they believed in a baptism by dunking their bodies three times in water for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of where they get their name. And their practices and clothing, it's, it's really similar to the Mennonite religion with plain dresses and hair coverings for women. And they don't believe in swearing oaths, using alcohol or tobacco, joining secret societies or groups outside of the church, or gambling. The family of Dunkerts, they wouldn't remain in Montana for long. In 1885, they were living near the southeast corner of Kansas in Crawford County. And this may have been due to the high number of European immigrants that lived in the area, which, you know, gave the county the nickname of the Little Balkans, Bosnia, Serbia area, Southern Europe. Ten years later, in the 1895 Kansas census, they were still living in Kansas, but the adult children had all moved on, leaving the baby of the family, Arthur, to help his mother and father in the fields at the age of 18. Now, we go through a lot of newspapers while researching these episodes, and they often have really funny advertisements about easing ailments. And I found this one from Kansas in 1899 with the headline, The long-felt want of the world found at last. A remedy discovered will cure piles, fissures, and all diseases of the rectum without knife, caustic, or ligature. What? (laughs) What What are we talking about here, Anthony? I'm sorry. Sir, this is a family podcast. (laughs) It's so funny. Okay. It's not funny. It's serious. Dr. Cleveland of Anthony, Kansas, which, I mean, it was founded by a really cool guy. This is why you wanted to read this story. (laughs) Has this remedy at last and will cure the above diseases. All female diseases treated with success. All rectum diseases treated with little or no pain. No pay required until cure is completed. And later in the advertisement, it says, Now, just a word to the ladies. You are often a twofold sufferer, and you have just as good a right to be cured as the gentleman. And I treat as many ladies as men. I would not for a moment have you other than modest, but false modesty has carried many ladies to a premature grave. So I humbly ask you to come and be cured. I never make a lady's name public. Instead, he listed the names of the spouses, where Eli's name is listed as a satisfied customer of Dr. Cleveland's procedure. And I don't know if this embarrassing advertisement is why the family left, but they were living in Sunset, Utah in the 1900 census. If you've ever driven to Salt Lake from Idaho, from Boise or anywhere, it's just south of Ogden, and it's right next to the Hill Air Force Base. So it's just north of Salt Lake. They didn't stay in Sunset for very long. Uh, Sometime in the following three years, they moved to a farm between Nampa and Caldwell, probably north of Nampa, east of Caldwell. And I found an article in the Caldwell newspaper, the Gem State Rural, in September 1903, stating that the Allens were prominent and substantial farmers living in the Pioneer Irrigation District with a fine farm of 17 acres. Eli, Julia, and Arthur were cultivating crops in orchard, which was bearing heavily, and the family was getting into the dairy business with seven milking cows. On his intake papers, Arthur would say that the family farm was near the Franklin School, which is about seven miles east of Caldwell. And I 
found all these really interesting things that were being hosted at the Franklin School. There was like this display of this new x-ray technology that was being put on in the schoolhouse, and uh, there were a lot of church meetings and other organizations going on there as well. I couldn't find exactly where it stood, though. Eli was uh, regularly riding from Nampa to Boise for business, and those trips were noted in the Idaho Statesman. And it may have been during one of these trips that young Arthur met Mary in Boise. And as Sky said, the couple married on March 18, 1905. They married in Caldwell, and I could only find one mention of it in the Caldwell Tribune saying, Saturday, Mr. Arthur W. Allen of Caldwell and Miss Mary Aldrich of Boise were happily married in this city. Reverend Boone officiated. Now, the name Boone and Caldwell might perk the ears of some listeners, particularly if you attended the College of Idaho, because... Reverend William J. Boone was one of the founders of the College of Idaho in Caldwell and served as president of the college for like 44, 45 years before his death in 1936. And he was quite the personality in Caldwell and seen as a very lovable person who came to Idaho to begin a Presbyterian church and ended up creating a college with a lasting legacy. A note on the College of Idaho website states that all who knew him loved him, and he was full of the milk of human kindness, which is something that I always strive for. And if you go to the campus today, there is a building named after him that contains the college's laboratories and science classrooms. And there's a statue of him in front of the building holding a book open. So if you ever go there, look for that. Anyway, so they are living somewhere kind of between the Allen Ranch in Nampa and Mary's home, which I believe was on Front Street in Boise, which is where they probably met Reuben and Christina Gardner, who, if you remember from last week's episode, were living right there along Front Street, right next to the railroad tracks. So this friendship would cut the whole honeymoon period of the Allens short. Because on October 6, 1905, an Idaho Statesman article titled Robbed Old Man of All He Had appeared following with a story about an old man named E.C. Buell who lived in a tent in Shacktown on 8th and 4th Street whose property consisted of, quote, a trunk, a chest, and two boxes, which had been stolen 10 days earlier on September 24th. The Statesman described the crime as a, quote, heartless robbery of an old man. Buell had packed all his belongings into a large chest and a small box, ready to leave town, when an old acquaintance named Reuben Gardner invited him into town for a drink of whiskey. When old man Buell returned to his tent a little tipsy, he found all of his belongings missing. Buell immediately alerted the police, who suspected Gardner. After ten days of investigations, the police felt that they had put the pieces together. They secured a warrant to search the Allens' home. When they arrived, they found Buell's belongings, as well as Reuben Gardner and Mary Allen, who were arrested and brought back to Boise. Arthur was nowhere to be found, and telegrams were sent all through the state for officers to be on the lookout. Mary paid her $300 bond and was released from the jail, but Reuben couldn't afford it. The sheriff got word that Arthur was spotted in a small town in Minidoka County and rode there and found Arthur, who still had some of Buell's belongings. He was arrested and brought back to Boise. Police suspected that every member of the group was in on the heist, so Reuben's wife, Christina, was arrested when the officers returned with Arthur. Upon questioning, Reuben, Christina, and Mary all feigned ignorance to the theft of Buell's belongings. Arthur, however, peached on his friends, confessing to the crime in open court. Arthur, quote, when put on the stand, told his story slowly but with evident truth. 
giving the minutest detail of the project to rob the old man, which had been pending for two or three months. I like that term peached. I think that's I know, like a it's like a tea it's like a term that we should still be using, peached. Yeah. <laughs> me too. I mean so yeah, it just means that he just like squealed on him, right? Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, he was the rat. He admitted that the quartet robbed Buell, but didn't say whose planet originally was. He said that Reuben Gardner would take Buell into town, get him drunk on whiskey. Meanwhile, Christina, Arthur, and Mary would steal everything from the tent using a team of horses borrowed from a neighbor named D.H. Hosack. When the police arrived at the Allen's house, the chest was just a charred pile of wood in the yard, and some of this charred wood was collected and used as evidence in the courtroom. Buell identified remains of the chest and the old-fashioned square nails that were used in it. And the neighbor that loaned the horse to the Allens that night also admitted that Arthur had told him about the heist. None of the three defendants admitted anything. The attorney asked for Mary Allen to be discharged because she wasn't connected to the crime except through her husband's testimony, which, quote, was illegal and incompetent as far as the wife was concerned. Regardless, Mary, Arthur, and Reuben were held on a fixed bail of $1,000 each. Strangely, Miss Gardner was given a fixed bail of $100, quote, in order that she might go home to look after the needs of her small son and of certain stock. Mary also had a small son and certain stock. But uh, Christina, she paid in cash this $100 bond and walked free while the other three were taken back to the Ada County Jail. And I can only imagine the hatred directed towards Arthur for his confession. I mean, even, I mean, we don't have Mary's side of the story or like her thoughts on it. But mm-hmm. I mean, I'd be so mad <laughs> if my husband totally squealed on me. Oh, oh right. my gosh. Like, I mean, she was arrested anyway, and so I guess maybe she was glad that he got arrested as well. But the fact that he just, like, straight up squealed. And also, if the 1868 date is correct, there's almost a decade between Mary and Arthur in terms of age, right? Yeah. So, I mean, so she is, how old is he at this this point? Late 20s? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so she's in her late 30s. I mean, I I think what I, the sort of math that I had come up with is she she shaved about five years off of of her her age. So she should be about 37 at this point. And that's, I mean, that in itself is interesting. Like, what bound these two together so much that they wanted to get married? Right. But it must not have been really love because he was so willing to make everyone take the fall with him yeah and there's some mention that he and mary were given immunity if he peached on reuben and christina but we'll see uh what happens next here (laughs) yeah well so on october 10th 1905 four days after the original story was produced reuben gardner pled guilty to the charge of burglarizing buell's tent He was sentenced to three years in the penitentiary. Mrs. Gardner was dismissed on a written motion of the county attorney for a lack of evidence against her and the fact that, quote, in view of the sentence of the husband to a long term in prison, Mrs. Gardner's liberation was imperative to the end that the children of the couple might be taken care of. On October 17th, 11 days after the Buell robbery broke the news, Arthur's father, Eli, arrived in Boise to bail out his son for $1,000. Any guesses of how much that might be, Sky? I'm going to say maybe like 
$18,000? Close. $28,805.44. Wow. What? That's $1,000? Yeah. Yeah. So after paying that with a certified check, Arthur was leaving the jail about to get into the wagon to head back to the farm in Canyon County when, quote, another warrant, likewise charging the crime of burglary, was immediately produced from the recess of one of the officer's pockets, and Allen was arrested for the second time before he had time to get out of the shadow of the jail. The warrant was for a July 8th burglary of the cellar of Howard I. Slusser, a fellow rancher and neighbor of the Allens in Nampa. So the couple were charged with stealing several jars of fruit, a couple hams, and other property, practically cleaning the cellar of everything of value. Mrs. Reuben Gardner led off and now husbandless for the next three years became a witness against the Allens. On October 19, 1905, the Idaho Statesman headline reads, Member of Gang Against Allens, Mrs. Reuben Gardner, who was arrested in Buell case, witness in later action. It states that in the Buell case, Arthur's testimony resulted in Reuben Gardner's prison sentence, and that shook the friendship of Mrs. Gardner, who took to the witness stand and testified that she and her husband had visited the Allen Ranch in mid-July, a few days after the Slusser burglary, and Allen had told her freely and voluntarily that he had stolen hams and other meat, which Slusser later identified as his own. And, you know, the question that sort of is raised here is, would Mrs. Gardner have been imprisoned if she hadn't produced this evidence against the Allens? And would she have testified against the Allens if her husband hadn't been convicted? Would she just have left the situation alone if her family had not been, you know, brought up in this, this same charge? Yeah, I think the authorities did a great job of convincing Arthur and Mary that if they peached on Reuben, they would be let free. But they didn't realize that the authorities had also made a deal with Christina that if she peached Mm. on Arthur and Mary about this Slusser Farm robbery, she would be let free. (laughs) Now, do we know the motivation of just stealing hams and stuff? I think it was just an opportunity. I think that they had this idea to break into this neighbor's cellar and steal these things. Well, and even with with Buell, like maybe they were not well off, but it doesn't doesn't seem like they just were like, oh, this would be funny. Let's take all this stuff. I don't know. I guess I just don't get it. Uh, yeah, I don't. I have never figured out like why would they do this. So Howard Slusser, his father-in-law W. H. Lamb, and Brother-in-law R.S. Lamb also positively identified the stolen hams and three jars of fruit that were stolen from the cellar and found on the Allen Ranch. A copper wash boiler was presented, but Mr. Slusser could not, quote, identify the boiler secured by Deputy Hodgins as his own, seeming to demonstrate the fact that he was not entirely familiar with that domestic article. Had Mrs. Slusser been present, she would doubtless have been able to identify the boiler without difficulty. The next day, the defense attorney declared that the evidence of the Allen's theft of the Slusser cellar was not enough to warrant holding them for the charge of burglary, and the judge overruled the defense attorney's plea, and he offered no other evidence to support the defense other than his denouncement of the evidence held against the Allens. So on December 11th, 1905, Arthur pled not guilty, and the next day Mary also pled not guilty to the Slusser burglary. Authorities thought that they could convict the couple more easily with the Slusser case than the Buell case, and luckily this this Slusser case is really 
well covered in the newspapers. As Anthony said, this is his favorite case. And uh, the case revolved around a, quote, toothsome ham, which I don't, what is that? It's just nice. It's a good ham. Tasty, yeah. Tooth, toothsome. Oh, no, that would make sense. Still, that's a very, let's bring that word back. Um, this ham, this toothsome ham was large and juicy, which Slusser had positively identified as his own. And I will hand it over to Anthony for a, a nice quote. He told the history of the ham from the time it was in the form of a large, fat, and well-fed hog until it was cut and trimmed and salted and smoked and stored away in the cellar to await the coming of some glad occasion when it might be sliced and fried in company with such a number of fresh ranch eggs as the occasion might demand. That time came, but when the good housewife of the slusher home entered the cellar to slice the ham, it was found that the ham was conspicuous by its absence. The ham was found in the house of Arthur and Mary Allen on Front Street in Boise. The ham was a young ham. It was not strong. It was shown at the trial that the ham could not have traveled of its own volition from the slusher cellar near Meridian to the home of the Allens in Boise. Therefore, Arthur and Mary Allen were arrested and later indicted by the grand jury on the charge of burglary in the first degree. The defendants swore that the ham had always been their ham, that the three jars of fruit which had accompanied the ham on its mysterious journey from the slusher to the Allen home had always been their fruit, and that the copper wash boiler, which had also executed a marvelous transposition of habitation, had since the dawn of time been their very own wash boiler. Mr. Slusser laid his hand on the rotund surface of the ham and swore by every living thing that it was his ham. And at the conclusion of the trial, when the jurymen had retired to deliberate, Attorney Callahan of the defense looked longingly at the ham marked State Exhibit A and licked his lips. Well, anyway said the veteran lawyer, turning to Assistant Prosecuting Attorney Silas W. Moody. You'll never set your teeth into that ham. No, said Attorney Moody. That's Slusser's ham. Humph, said Callahan. Nonsense, said he. (laughs) (laughs) That whole section is just my favorite thing to read. It's just the funniest. It could not have traveled on its own volition. It's just Uh the... (laughs) And, like, the idea that, like, the ham is just, like, sitting out there and he, like... Slusser like puts his hand on it like this is my ham like the I, slap uh, of his hand on the top of this ham is just <laughs> well and it's so funny because like it's such a weird case because he's like this is my ham I know because I I remember the hog and I blah 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 and Tells then of the course history. Mary and Alan are like what are you talking about this is our ham and I just think that's so I mean, it is such a weird case that you have to... Because, like, at the end of the day, I mean, I guess they would take his word and the fact that he was able to sort of, like, trace its, like, beginnings, I guess. But you could... A ham a ham comes from a pig. There's, It's, like, not a, you know, it's not a hard thing to discuss the history of, I guess. <laughs> so, Christina Gardner also served as a witness against the Allens during this trial. Not really a surprise there. The defense attorney, T.D. Callahan, repeatedly tried to disqualify her statements against the Allens, showing that she was making up the story out of spite for her husband's incarceration that made her feel bitter and unfriendly toward the Allens, but the only thing he could get out of her was that she no longer regarded them with the same friendliness as before, and she admitted that, quote, her sense of duty commanded that she speak, that justice might be done. The newspaper references the old proverb, quote, when thieves fall out, honest men come by their own. 
Had Arthur not been honest and condemned all of them with his courtroom confession, the case could have resulted in all, or none of them, being arrested. Arthur ruined everything. He did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this trial is happening 20 days before the assassination of Governor Frank Stunenberg in, in Caldwell. Mm. I think had this happened any time later, we would not mm. have gotten this information. But I think it was such slow news that we get this mm-hmm. funny right. trial info. <laughs> anyway... <laughs> Sentencing. With that, the jury and judge make their decision, and on December 21st, both were found guilty after seven hours and 20 minutes of jury deliberation. Two days later, on December 23rd, 1905, Arthur and Mary Allen entered the prison with a four-year sentence in the Idaho State Penitentiary for burglary in the first degree. So, Mary's stats... She comes in for first-degree burglary on a four-year sentence. Again, she said that she was 32 years old, born in Missouri. Her legitimate occupation was a housekeeper. They did not list her height or weight. Her complexion was medium. Her hair color was brown, color of eyes gray. She was married and had four children. Her father was not living. He had died when she was 22. Mother not living died when she was 19. And she left the home after the death of her father. And as we know, that all of that is incorrect in some way. She had had religious instruction and attended Sunday school in the Methodist church. She said that she was illiterate and attended school no years, which is always one of my favorite ways that they word (laughs) not going to school. (laughs) She said that she was abstinent in her habits of life, so she didn't drink or do drugs. The name and address of her nearest relative is listed as Eliza Bystoff, who is her sister living in Fergus Falls, Minnesota. Condition of her teeth were good, and the property found on the convict was $3.13, a cheap gold watch, a purse and key ring, and two chains, and they were kept in package number 100. Now, in terms of sort of the things I found that were incorrect, as I said, she was probably likely around 37, not 32, so she dropped about five years off her age. And then her sister's name is listed as incorrect. It's listed as as Eliza Bystoff, but her sister was actually Eliza Byersdorf. Eliza was actually seven years older than Mary. She was actually about four siblings ahead of, of Mary. There's about three siblings in between so they they remained close but she remembered the name incorrectly the the person who was typing it down got it incorrect so what about arthur's stats arthur he's number 1186 his age is 29 he was born in meadow creek montana occupation rancher and photographer which is something that i couldn't Hmm. find any evidence of anywhere else his height five feet ten and three quarters inches Complexion, light, weight, 151 pounds, color of hair, light brown, color of eyes, brown-gray, married with no children. Both parents were still living, and he left his home at 28 years old to live with Mary on Front Street in Boise. Had religious instruction as a dunkard and attended Sunday school, but didn't belong to a church now, and he attended school for nine years. He was a moderate drinker, no former imprisonment, and Eli Allen was his closest relative living near Franklin Schoolhouse in Nampa, Idaho. And peculiarity in build and features, it listed he was tall, sullen-faced, and he had firm jaws. Condition of teeth was good. He had a brown mustache upon arrival, 
and you can see that in his mugshot. Size of Boo is 9, and he had an 8 and 1 8 inch size hat, and the property found on him was a razor, a scarf pin, a plain band gold ring, and a pocket knife, and a suit of clothes was left in the commissary department. How was Mary's incarceration? I mean, as far as we know, it was pretty mild. She entered the really brand spanking new women's ward. It had just been finished that year in 1905. And she shared the the women's ward with three other inmates. One was Jenny Daly, who was in for manslaughter. And she is actually profiled in the couples episode of season one. And she did not leave until after Mary, so she was there uh, the entire time that Mary was. Caddy Shoup, who was in for voluntary manslaughter, she was also in there. She left in September 1908. And then Evelyn Clark uh, was in for burglary in the second degree. She left in October 1908. And another woman actually did not enter the women's ward during Mary's term until September 1908. So it was actually Jenny, Caddy, Evelyn, and Mary for almost three years um, until uh, Alta McGee, who we profiled in season one, episode nine. She's in for assault with a deadly weapon. She came in in September 1908. She actually left Christmas 1908. Our first Boise (laughs) drive-by. Yeah. And then just a month later, so in October 1908, Cora Stanfield, who was in for adultery, we profile her in season two, episode seven. She was also in the women's ward. By the time that Mary left, it was just her, Jenny Daly, and Cora in the women's ward. So um, not a lot of not a lot of people uh, in here, really, while she was in there, and then and then by the time she left. But I imagine she probably got pretty close with the ladies in there. I mean, they're all in there for about three years. So yeah, that would be so interesting to know, like, what they thought of each other. Like, did they all get along? Did they fight? Oof. Uh-huh. Drama. What's the drama in this women's <laughs> ward? That would I would watch that TV show if someone made it. I could see Jenny stirring it up big time. Mm, totally. Totally. <laughs> the women's ward was created when a wall was constructed that was 17 feet high and two and a half feet thick around the old warden's house, which served as the women prisoners' kitchen and dining room. And then a separate cell house was constructed. It was only 14 by 20 feet. That's not very oh, big. Tiny. I know. That's super where they tiny. slept. That's, that's in the biennial report. I was like, no way. In the warden's biennial report from 1905 and 1906, the warden wrote that a matron was hired to watch over the women and their time would be occupied by doing their own washing and cooking and later, quote, making shirts for the male prisoners of the institution. So this is really all we know about Mary's time in the prison. So what about Arthur? Yeah, during Arthur's time, the men were put to useful work quarrying stone, digging wells and sewer systems, and constructing new cell houses. So number two and number three house were under construction. It was this tedious project that started in 1899, and those buildings were originally supposed to be attached, and you can still kind of see remnants of that. And Arthur would just about see the first house, number three house, completed in 1909, It was unfortunately created entirely out of sandstone, and after 10 solid years of construction efforts, the warden would enter it in 1909 and deem it unsafe and extremely easy to escape out of as he brought an iron pick and chiseled away the door frame of the cell until the cell door actually fell to the floor, which is a major hazard when you're trying to keep people in their cells. So Yeah, no, you you don't want to be able to do that. No, no. He's like, if I can do this as an old man... 
I think that any of these young bucks, these young prisoners who are not going to be wanting in their cells are going to have an easy job at this. So number three house is basically a big waste of time, and they stripped all those cells out and finished two house by 1911. Warren E.L. Whitney stated that, quote, I venture to say that no other institution of a like kind has had as little friction as we have had. There have been no outbreaks of any kind, which, in a measure, is due to the fact that the prisoners have had their time occupied with work, keeping them from plotting, planning, and scheming. So he would have been probably put to work as a 29-year-old man, maybe cutting the sandstone and, and building and constructing these cell houses. But Buell's story doesn't end, so he actually wanted justice for his belongings, for his chests and boxes. And so actually on January 20th, 1906, he brings up the original case against Arthur and Mary, and he demands $100 for the value of the stolen goods from both the Allens. And the judge actually rendered that Arthur owed $75 to Edie Buell while Mary was let off the hook. So... Arthur had to pay this $75 fine. And then on New Year's Eve in 1906, Arthur's father, Eli, rode into Nampa on horseback and, quote, came back feeling as well as usual with the exception of a headache, but went about his work as usual and while eating supper, fell off his chair and never uttered another word. He died, leaving behind five children and his wife, and his funeral was held by the Brethren Church by a Presbyterian minister that may have been William J. Boone from the College of Idaho, and he was interred in the new cemetery near the church. This would have broken Arthur's heart here. Would have left him pretty despondent in the prison. Mm -hmm. I bet. So um, Mary and Arthur end up actually getting released on the same day after expiration of their sentence. They are released on February 23rd, 1909. They served three years and two months of a four-year sentence. Mm -hmm. And soon after getting out on May 27th, 1910, Mary and Arthur actually get divorced. Crime usually seems to separate couples. Not sure why that is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> weird. So Anthony actually found this, which is great that we have two people researching because I would have missed this. It's just actually a little blurb really in the in the paper, and it's actually more about the candidacy of Judge Brown. There was a case in the court this morning, May 27th, 1910, the case of Mary Allen versus Arthur Allen for divorce was filed, tried, and a decree entered in the morning session. If there's any court in the state that can beat this record, just trot it out. Yeah, so, so it literally I guess they took are, the afternoon yeah. to file their divorce. So they're so they're they're saying, look at how efficient our good Judge Brown is. Um, <laughs> that that he can get this done real quickly. Um, <laughs> We don't know what how it ended up, like who filed it and who sort of got, if there was alimony that needed to be paid or any of those details. But they got divorced. And seven months later, actually, on December 28th, 1910, Mary married a man named Daniel W. Lore in Boise. And Daniel actually went by D.W., which is also the name of Arthur the Aardvark's little sister from the animated show Arthur. <laughs> so there's like there's some some real Arthur. That was like my childhood as a kid. Some real kickbacks to that. Yeah, anyway, same. Um, yeah. <laughs> so uh, D.W. Lore 
He was a carpenter, and a little fun fact about him was that in 1911, he actually applied for a plot of land in Boise through the U.S. General Land Office. She married him, moved on to his plot of land, and I'm not exactly sure what happened, but Mary and D.W. actually divorced at some point. I couldn't find a, a divorce record or anything. They don't really exist for them this early. But here's an interesting thing, because on February 8th, 1918, they actually remarried. Um, in Ada County. So I don't know how long they were married for the first time, how long they were broken up for, or the reasons for remarrying, but they did remarry. And they would stay married for the rest of Mary's life because around February 28th, only three weeks after marrying D.W. again, Mary developed an infection in her bowels, which sounds horrific. And over the next eight months, she just became sicker and sicker. Uh, There was a doctor who sort of looked after her, but it doesn't seem that he thought that there was much to be done about this infection. I mean, this is 1905. Medicine, even though we're no longer, like, bleeding people, is still fairly primitive. And so she just kind of got sicker and sicker, and she actually died of this bowel infection on September 12th, 1918, in Boise. Now, her death record lists her age at death as 46, which would match an 1872 birth year. But as we know, she probably would have been closer to about 51, which, again, when you see her mugshot, will make so much more sense. And so she she died just fairly young, I mean, in her 50s. And D.W. and her four daughters buried her in the St. John's Catholic section of the Morris Hill Cemetery in Boise. So I'm wondering if she converted to Catholicism, because I would imagine you're not going to bury a Methodist in the Catholic section of the cemetery. That is Mary. What happened to Arthur? I have no record as to what happened to Arthur after the divorce. Basically, my trail ended with the divorce. I did find a lot of Arthur Allens living and working in Boise and Canyon Mm. County, and a couple of them being busted for like being drunk in public and things like that, but I don't know if that was him or not. Mm. He probably went back to live with his, his widowed mother and worked on the farm if she still owned it. She died on March 20th, 1927, but Arthur isn't noted in her obituary or on her findagrave.com as a child of hers. So I really don't know what happened to Arthur after his mm. release from prison. It, he could have traveled. He could have joined the military. He could have done anything. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I don't know what ever happened to him. That's kind of it for Arthur. It's huh. kind of a kind of a sad end. So huh. that's, that's it. Yeah, it's, these that's... two ended up being incarcerated for some toothsome ham and you can buy some merch with arthur's mugshot on it it says crime stole a ham fruit and a pan with his wife mary allen and on the back it says making a break for some coffee you can find that on our website go to history.idaho.gov search around there you'll find our store and you could order from there and you can purchase our brand new book numbered about the women incarcerated at the old Idaho Penitentiary, which is based on the research of our very own Sky. <laughs> it looks like it, a, a great book, so I can't wait to come back and see it. Yes, it's so amazing. Everybody should definitely order this. If you haven't already, if you don't have it right now, order this and an, an Arthur Allen mug or a Lida mug, because we also have a Lida Southern mm-hmm. mug. 
sit on your back patios and read it this summer. It's going to be a great time. Well, everybody, thank you for listening. This is one of my favorite stories. Yeah, thank you, Sky. And uh, everybody, mm-hmm. do your own time. Do your own number. We'll see you next week for our finale. Woo! Finale. Woohoo. Got a very spooky one. Ooh. I will just preface mine is not spooky. Um, it does deal with abortion, though, so it will be listener discretion advised. Ooh. All right. See y'all next week. Okay. If you enjoyed Behind Grey Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.